Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 20th, 2018, and this is episode 2275 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. If you want to submit content for a show like today's show, this is what you got to do. Open up your email program and put in the subject line the following letters, T, S, P, C, all together like a word, and then hit a space, and then tell me like link for Jack, question for Jack, article for Jack, Jack, you're a jerk, whatever it is. Then go into the body of the email. Make your point or ask your question with one sentence. I promise you it can be done. Hit the return key a time or two, put some space in there, give me your details. And if you're going to give me a lot of details, You get three or four or five sentences in, hit return again. Put some spaces in there. I do not like blocks of jumbled text. I can't read it. I only got one eye. Well, one eye that I can really see out of. Not good for me to have giant blob of text. Gives me a headache, and then I don't read your, you know, your details or your question, and you don't get on the air. So do those things. You'll be likely to get on the air. The TSPC is important. This is why. I run pretty aggressive spam filtering, and until I have gotten an email from you and remembered to say, never block this guy, a lot of stuff gets sucked into the spam folder. But sooner or later, I get off my ass, and I look at my thing, and it says, you know, junk mail, 6,800 and some odd emails. And I go in there, and I say, show me everything with TSPC in the subject line. And then I pull those out. And then I actually address them, whether it's going to the expert counsel, whether it's a direct email response, or whether it is going into the folder for screening for the show. If you don't do that, after I do TSPC, I have one or two other keywords I search, which I won't divulge here, because the only ones you need are TSPC. And then I do mass delete all 6,871 emails this morning, gone, like a fart in the wind. So if you want to get on the air, this is what you got to do, man. And I'm, it's me trying to help you help me help you. That's all it is. Anyway, what do we got today? Um, not direct feedback, but it's like long-term indirect feedback. Why are you on Instagram, Jack? I don't have time for one more thing. But what do I teach? I teach that when your audience wants you to communicate with them, given a, VM, a specific medium, you should do that. Well, guess what? We're doing that in a unique way. I think it'll be a fun way. And I don't have to do a lot, which I really like. I'll tell you all about it when we get to the first segment of the show. It'll be quick, brief, etc. Uh, next, uh, I, last week, I've done this a couple times lately with expert counsel segments in my own segments. I had a question on teaching kids to fish with like a class. I called it Herding Cats. I talked about it in the intro, but I did not actually do it in the feedback show. So I'm going to actually do that this week. And I moved it to the second spot in the docket so that I wouldn't forget again. Um, also... I have a, a comment that's sort of a question about being a good customer. Not just a good you know provider, but a good customer. I'll give you my thoughts on that. And I'll tell you why I think it's important. And the smaller the business you're dealing with, and the more you may need to rely on them again, the more important it actually is. Uh, next, doctors are now embracing single-payer health care, that is. Here is why the average American will do it next. I forecasted this all the way back in uh, 2009, 2010, 2011, as we went through the whole health care debacle, and it's all coming true, just like I said it would. 
And that doesn't mean I'm happy about it. Remember, when I say I say something's going to happen, it doesn't mean I want it to. It means I think it's going to happen. And when I say here it comes, that doesn't mean, look, I was right. It means, damn it, I was right, usually. It's like the weatherman when he says, hey, it's going to rain tomorrow. It doesn't necessarily mean he wants it to rain. He just says, hey, there's a big-ass storm coming. It's going to rain tomorrow. That's what we're talking about there. Uh, next up, a question on finding old episodes of TSP, and I have some thoughts on that. Uh, leaving a job. What do you do with that pension, 401k, IRA, etc., especially if you're sitting on a bunch of debt and you could use it to help with Should you do that? Is it tempting? Or do you just say that is retirement money and it needs to stay in the form of some way of retirement money? And then what do you do if that's what it is? Uh, another really good plug for the Zello group, we're talking hundreds of dollars or more saved here, depending on how honest or dishonest the person you would have called would have been. And why degrees are going to get very, very cheap very, very soon Uh, how about a master's degree that could cost you up to forty grand from the same institution now costing you ten, and it's still way overpriced, and it's just beginning to drop, okay? And I wrote a white paper back in 2006 called Death of the Resume for a recruiting firm that I was a partner in. And uh, I've talked about that here on the air, and some of you remember what I say even way, way long ago. So somebody sent me an article uh, that is basically on the death of the resume, and it said, where have we heard this before? Well, you've heard it from me. You're going to hear why it's, uh, why it's even still a thing. And what you should be doing if you want a career in the future, um, apart from what this article says, because what this article says is they're just catching up to, you know, I don't know, 2010 maybe, if that. All of that and more in just a bit before we get to that. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Gun, no ammo, what do you got? Overpriced club. I said overpriced club. Really expensive thing you can beat somebody with. Maybe have a barter implement, but it, it can't do what a gun does. In fact, it's actually likely to get you killed if you tried to use it for what a gun's intended, if it made for self-defense and, and then you didn't have any You see how that works, like... You know, gangbangers that paint the orange tip on airsoft guns get shot, right? So, gun, no ammo, club, or at best, a barter item. Something you can sell for money, take a loan against at a pawn shop, but it can't do what a gun's supposed to do. So you need the ammo. And when you start hearing rumor mills running about more gun control, what dries up first isn't the guns, it's the ammo. I mean, my God, we just, I can say about a year ago, started to be able to buy 22 ammunition in quantity again without paying, like, your kidney and your half your liver for a brick. So you want to get over to bulk ammo. You want to stock up on ammo now while it's widely available and cheap. And if you're thinking, you know, maybe I'm going to go pick some ammo up this weekend. I promise you that you'll find reasons not to before the weekend comes. And sooner or later you'll get to it. But if you order from Bulk Ammo before the weekend, so there'll be a knock on your door, and the UPS man will be dropping it off. It is lightning-fast shipping, great service, all the common carolers, great pricing, and good partner. Been with us six years. They're loyal to us. Be loyal to them. BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. Silver and gold is a place where things can get really nasty and really dirty, and some of you know my history uh, with silver and gold industry, trying to be part of it, and it, it didn't end well. It's hard to find good, honest, trustworthy people that fix problems and, and, and don't go away in the solar and gold industry. And basically what you end up then with is you deal, you deal with your big silver and gold houses, your Monex, your Atmex, your Lear Capital, and things like that. And that's okay. It, it is. My problem with them is still things go wrong. In the world of human beings, things go wrong. And my rule for a sponsor is, 
I get to talk to somebody with complete and total authority to fix shit, or you don't get to be a sponsor. I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, but that's what I want for my audience. Because if I hear some shit, I want to be able to say, hey, fix it. So, if I ever have a problem with J.M. Bullion, and I haven't for years, but if I, there's something goes wrong, and they're not, the person's not getting satisfaction, I want to be able to get in touch with their, their president. His name's Michael, and I can. And I'll say, hey, dude. There's a problem here. And you know what he says? Like I said, it hadn't happened for years, but in the very beginning, they had some customer service things fall through the cracks here and there. And what he always said to me was, thank you for bringing this to my attention so that I can fix it. And on top of it, you look at the pricing, and JM Bullion matches or beats the pricing of the big silver houses day-to-day, all the time, every time. They also give you a discount if you're a member of the MSB. And all your orders ship for free. Learn more at jmbullion.com, but get that discount if you're buying more than $300 worth of stuff at any given time. You can find that again in the benefits section of the MSB. Now, before we get to your stuff for today, let's go ahead and take a look at a year in history. Um, David Verne's supposed to be back, but there wasn't anything for the year 149 from David Verne. But Ariana, whoever Ariana is, has a uh, history statement for today, so I will read it. I just wanted to point that out because, look, A wiki means anybody can. It's a duocracy. If you'd like to contribute to the history segment or in any way contribute to our TSP wiki, go to tspwiki.com, set up an account. If you don't know what to do, there are tutorial videos that show you how to edit articles, add articles, all that good stuff. What Ariana has to tell us about, though, in the year 149 is Greek influence in India. Yaksirvana, Sanskrit for Lord, is Savara of the Greeks. Yarvanus, <laughs> okay? The Lord of the Greeks, dude, was a man of the Greek lineage who lived in the Gusat region of India in 149 to 150 CE. Yaka translated to the Yakvajada, or saying of the Greeks, one of the earliest writings of Indian astrology from Greek to Sanskrit. A somewhat minor player in history, he is a lingering reminder of Alexander the Great's conquering of the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent in 326 B.C., So we're looking 400 years in the past at that point, right? Greek presence was waning, if not near extinct by this point in the region that covers modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. The legacy of the Indo-Greeks was felt for several centuries, from the usage of the Greek language and calendar to the distinctive coinage, and with influence traceable down to the rulers of the 4th century. Even one branch of Buddhism is suggested to have noticeable influence from the Greek uh, tradition, Uh, and Ariana leaves comments, the Greek conquest in 326 B.C. Uh, to the nearly vanquished Greek presence in 150 A.D., that's 475 years, great and not so great, kings forgotten, life went on. You know what I, what I liked about this is that last thing, life went on. I think sometimes we become so arrogant into how important that we are as a people, as a nation, as a time that we forget how we tend to look at history. Many of us do love history. We love to study history and talk about history. But for everything that there will ever be written in a book about history or a wiki about history or a blog about history or spoken in a podcast about history, there are a hundred million things that happen that no one cares about anymore. And life does go on. Now, I think what that actually has the greatest lesson for us in is not long historical context, but brief historical context. It amazes me how upset people are about the bullshit on the TV on a daily basis. But if you ask them what they were pissed off about in February, they couldn't tell you if you offered them $1,000. Life went on. 
there are more lessons in history than just the ones that we typically talk about. The fact that in the end, life goes on and the human condition is one of continuum is certainly one of them. With that, let me remind you real quick, if you are not an MSB member yet, consider joining. You help support the show. You get great benefits. That's all I got on that today. Let's go ahead and dive into it. So what I wanted to tell you guys about today, I've had a lot of you guys over the years, Jack, why do you do Instagram? And I'm like, ah. I, I, I tend to be active on platforms that I'm active on, right? So what does that mean? That means like if I use it for things other than to promote my show and to talk to my audience, I tend to promote my show and talk to my audience on it. But I know I'm breaking one of my own rules. And I'm breaking one of my own rules because I've taught people for years, if your people want to talk to you via a given medium, you talk to them. However, I also have limitations. So you then you have to say, okay, well, I'd like to do everything everybody wants, but I can't. So I, I tend to do Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And I think that's a pretty big social media obligation right there. But Instagram is cool. I just really don't have time for one more thing. But my my nephew and his wife run their business and drive probably 80 to 90% of their business through Instagram. And they're doing very well for themselves. They're actually following my business model to the T, even though what they're doing is totally different. Uh, but as far as the revenue model, it's almost exactly the same type of a revenue model and contact content generation business. So my wife sat down with them uh, recently, and they showed her kind of what they're doing on Instagram. And, and she still needs to learn more, but she's like, well, I can do that for Jack. So here's what we're going to do with my Instagram channel, which I've had since 2012. And, and until this morning, it had exactly zero pictures on it. But I do have like, I had like a, almost a thousand, like 1,050 followers as of this morning. Since I posted on Facebook about it, now it's up to like 1,100, it's almost 1,200 followers. Um, so... We're going to resurrect it and use it. I had to post a picture on it before they would even let me edit my profile and try to figure it out, which, God, I hate Instagram as far as non-intuitive and all of their technical help stuff is like, well, that was five editions ago, Instagram. How about a new version of it? That little, I had little symbols on it. Anyway, got it going. Dorothy did a couple of things. And what we're going to do, and I tried to tra change my Instagram handle, which you're supposed to be able to do, but it never worked. Uh, I was going to change it instead of Jack Spirico to Life with Jack or Living with Jack, but that's going to be the angle of the channel, even though it's going to stay at Jack Spirico. So what this is going to be is Dorothy is going to randomly take pictures, and when we figure out how the damn video thing works, short videos of me throughout the day and post them to my Instagram. So you're going to get to look at my life through her eyes, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, uh, the pissed-off Jack because he's working on a plumbing part that won't go together, The Grandpa Jack that's hanging out with his granddaughter or grandson and doing something like that. The guy mixing a drink at the end of the day, that type of thing. She's going to handle it all. She'll put up a few posts a day, maybe more. I don't know. Uh, for her, it's not really a big deal to add that. For me, it would be a huge deal. And my other thing is I always thought, like, I'm a podcaster, an audio podcaster. Uh, I have a voice and a face made for radio Instagram really isn't my thing. I'm not producing knives like Patrick Rorman of MT Knives or something like that. I'm not walking a trail, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that stuff every day of my life. Most of my life is spent behind a microphone for the work part of the day. And you know, then when I'm trying to get things done in the time that I have available, a lot of times it's just scrambling to get it done. And but I think the point of some of the social media is a is a look behind the scenes. And I think Dorothy can give a unique view. And she'll put things up I never would. 
So it should be fun. If you are on Instagram, my handle is at Jack Spearco. All one word, no spaces or special characters, which I think is how Instagram has to work anyway. Um, and I have a link in the show notes to my page. And uh, if you got any tips for how to make the damn thing work without wanting to throw your phone through the wall, I'll leave them in the show notes today, and uh, I'll see what I can do to get those over to Dorothy. But uh, my, my nephew Nick's going to do a, a, a big sit-down powwow with Dorothy uh, on how to do all the stuff that they do, because they're kind of like Instagram ninjas. Uh, so maybe things will get better as we go. Next up, I, I don't have the original email anymore because it got purged after the last show from my, my active folder uh, for the show. But there was a question that came in. It was basically, Jack, how do I set up a fishing class for kids? And I refer to that as herding cats. Um, and I almost didn't do this one. And maybe that's subconsciously why it got left off last week, though the show went pretty long last Monday. Um, my first thought was, oh, my God, no, 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 let me run away. I don't even want to think about this. My head hurts. Oh, my God, no. Trying to get a bunch of kids together and teach them to fish just seems like a bad idea on the surface. And I've taught a lot of little kids to fish over the years. And generally... One guy with one kid who's not fished yet, it's all you can do to keep them inbounds and not from embedding themselves or you with a hook or running away and filling their shoe with dirt or you know drawing with a stick instead of looking at the fish or yelling because the fish aren't biting or whatever it is. You know, it, it's, it's kind of stressful in a way uh, to me anyway to, to teach a kid to fish now once they have basic capability they can put a worm on a hook and cast it out and reel it in and take a fish off themselves if we can get that far kind of taking them to the next level i'm really good at that and i think that's part of me and kids to begin with i'm much better with kids when they reach what i call the age of reason than prior to the age of reason is when I can take my grandson aside, when, when something's going on where I'm not happy with him, I can say, this is what you did. Do you understand why that's wrong? He can look you in the eye and say, yeah, I do. Go tell your grandma you're sorry or whatever it is. Or go pick that up or go clean that up or go fix that. And they can go do it. They may not always do what you want, but they understand it and they can do it, which means if they don't do it, then you can apply discipline as necessary. I'm great once we get there. Stage my granddaughter's in. I have a lot of fun with her. But you cannot reason with a two-year-old. It doesn't work. Two-year-olds are, two are terrorists. So the more we move kids along toward that kind of tween to teen, early teens, much easier for me to deal with them. If I was going to be a school teacher, I'd be teaching junior high or high school. I would not be teaching grade school. Couldn't do it. So when I start thinking about fishing, kids and fishing and bunch of them together, I won't, ah. however, I actually think it's a great idea. Because it might make the actual lakeside or creekside experience a hell of a lot less annoying or difficult or stressful for both sides. So I think that if I was going to put together a class for kids, I'd want to you know, do kind of a, hey, this is what everything is and this is how everything works type of thing. And maybe put together a few rods. I don't know how big this thing you're talking about is going to be, but I wouldn't want any more than five, four or five casting at once. But with the practice plug and a push-button reel and just learning to cast, right? Cast and reel in. Do it a couple times and watch for your friends. Let's not hit our friends. Let's look back before we... So kind of a, an understanding, this is what tackle is. This is how it works. This is how we try to catch fish. You could even start talking about simple things like structure. 
And, and so exactly how you would do that, I think, is more a teacher thing than uh, a dictation thing. In other words, everybody explains things differently. But I think you could explain things. Like if I was explaining to kids, I would say, so if it's really hot out and really sunny and everybody's hot and there's a tree or an open field, where are we going to go? And if the kids are old enough for this, they're going to be smart enough to go, we're going to go on a tree because there's shade there. Okay, why are we going to go there? What's well, cooler? Okay, we call that cover. We call that cover. We call it structure. The tree is attractive to us because it makes us cooler. And then if it was cold out, but the sun was shining really brightly, we would go away from the tree into the sun, right? Yeah, okay. And, and we would do that because it's warmer there. So we might move toward or away from a structure depending on the time of day, what the temperature is, and things like that. And that's what fish do. When they're scared, they hide, so they go in the weeds. When they're, when they're hungry, they, they move along those weeds looking for the ones that are hiding. So that's how we fish. And I don't know if that's getting too advanced depending on the age or what have you, but I think basically an overall understanding, this is, this is what a fishing rod is. This is how a fishing rod works. This is what a hook is. This is why we're not using hooks today. You know, this is, this is what, how we use bait. This is the type of baits that we use. And, and what makes me think this is a noble idea is how many times I've been somewhere and you see a guy come with his kid to go fishing. And they're fishing a little creek or a little pond or something with a bunch of little bluegills in there. And the kid could probably catch a hundred of them and become addicted to fishing for life with the right setup. Because these fish are like, you could probably mail them with a first-class stamp. That's how small they generally are. And there might be some bigger ones in there, but the majority of them, these kids are going to get by from a little fish. They're from you know, a couple inch to maybe seven inches long. And they'll have this rod, and they have a bobber that's like bigger than a baseball. Like Usually the ones I see are a little bit bigger than a baseball, but smaller than a softball. And they have this big-ass hook and this big-ass weight, and you see the guy just plop. And then you see the bobber just go bloom, 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 just shaking and shivering and quivering, and the kid yurking on it, and then the guy yells at him and throws it back out, and you're like, the fish in there couldn't pull that bobber. It'd be like you trying to pull down a boat, right? And, I mean, it's just everything's wrong there. And I think being able to, like, explain the size of the fish, the size, all of that sounds like a good idea. Exactly how to formalize this, I don't know. But I think it would be a great thing if we could come up with, let's say, a 15 maybe four 15-minute segments so it could be done multiple times with breaks in between because kids get bored, uh, like a one-hour introduction to fishing for children that then we go to the water. Because I do think that it would be, and I've tried to do that with my grandson as he's gotten older because I want to take him fishing more as he gets continues to get older with let's understand how everything works here. Because when you get them to the water, all they want to do is get that damn thing in the water, and then they wonder why they're not catching a fish. Well, we, we don't we don't have anything on there yet because you, you threw it in empty, you know, or, or what have you. And, and they're all like they got ants in their pants and stuff like that. And I think if they have a reasonable expectation of what's going on, and, and I've always said with kids with fishing, it's important to, you know, I don't think it makes sense to take eight year old fishing and try to teach them how to use lures. Until they, until the, if that kid is ready, then fine. Bait, we can throw the bait out, put the fish in a Y stick, and kick back, and they can read a comic book for all I care. They can run around and pretend to be an airplane. I don't care what they do as long as they're attached to it. And if I hook the fish and I call a kid over here real efficient, and eventually they, they either become interested in it or they don't. And I think that's the other important thing to understand. Like, a lot of kids want to go fishing, 
But a lot of kids that want to go fishing, even if they go fishing and catch fish, do not become fishermen. And I think we as adults, especially with kids that we're related to or we're close to in some way, and we want to share that love of the outdoors with them, need to be careful when I try to hoist something onto them. Um, for instance, like when I was a kid, I played basketball because other kids played basketball, and sometimes that was what other kids were doing. I really didn't care. I didn't like basketball. I don't watch basketball. It's not because I, I think basketball players are overplayed or some crap. I just don't care. It's just a, it's just a game I'm not interested in. And, and, and you can tell me, well, they're amazing athletes, and there's a lot of excitement, and the games are usually close. Okay, I get it, but I don't care. And I think we all have things in our life that no matter how great the exposure to them is, we're not going to care. So what I like about this idea is maybe just as a first step, also maybe as a sorting mechanism to identify kids that really want to fish more. Now, I have a hard time understanding how anybody doesn't like fishing, especially if you go where fish are and catch fish. I understand people that their only experience with fishing has been sitting around in a boat sweating their ass off, For hours and hours being told, shh, be quiet because the fish will run away when that's not true to begin with. You know, unless you're banging on the boat or something, it's not a big deal to talk. Uh, and they've never caught any fish. I, I get that. But to me, like, fishing is like an innate thing. Like, we are hunter-gatherers by nature, and fishing is a way by which we hunt and gather. And I think that most people put it to the right situation, tend to enjoy fishing. By the way, you'll probably be getting a rewind Monday next week if I don't get two shows done uh, one day this week because I'm going fishing again with my buddy Omar Cotter. So I'll use this as a little uh, opportunity to throw out a uh, kind of a commercial for him again. If you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or are going to be, and you want to go out and, 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 and have a catching guide instead of just a fishing guide, Omar Cotter of Luck O the Irish Fishing Guide Service is the guy to go with. Uh, he's been guiding for over 20 years. I met him through my late friend, Hal Dodd, who was also a guide, who's the guy that taught me Joe Pool Lake. And uh, Hal always had the highest opinion of Omar. And I, I know neither you don't know either one of them out there in the audience, but let me tell you something. <laughs> If Hal Dodd had a high opinion of you as a fishing guide, you're a hell of a person and a hell of a guide. Because Hal was the kind of guy... His opinion to be high of you, no matter how good you were as a guide, if you weren't also a good man, he didn't want nothing to do with you. So uh, I can't say high enough that you get the kids where they're at least advanced enough to be in a boat and hold on to a pole and not want to go back to pee five minutes after the dock. Go out with a guide, and if you're here, go out with uh, Omar Cotter. All right, next up, um, this is an this was an interesting email. It it it. it Gave me a little bit of pause and a little bit of time to think. It comes in from Ken and Ken, or Kern, I'm sorry, Kern, and Kern said this, uh, I have a follow-up comment on the expert counsel segment on Friday where Darby Simpson responded to a question about pricing and selling turkeys. I've made it a point to listen to all the segments of these shows, even if the topic at first glance isn't something I'm directly concerned with. I'm going to talk a little bit after we address the core of this, why that is good advice anyway. As you often say, even if you're not an entrepreneur, think like one. When Darby mentioned the different ways to handle customer expectation, my takeaway was that as a customer, I can sell myself as a desirable customer and get extra consideration if I'm simply a pleasant person. I listen to different options and realize that as a customer, I have a great deal of control uh, which of those choices the seller chooses or to condense it down to basics, don't be an asshole. 
P.S. Thanks for hosting the TSP 10-year anniversary party. We really enjoyed it. And here's the several more years. I hope it's more than several, Kern. I hope that's not a prophecy or something. Anyway, um, so yeah, here's the thing. The smaller the business is, the quicker the people running it work up to a point where they can't take all the business that they have. And people that do that are good at what they do. And you may find there's only one or two or just that one uh, in your area that does that thing. And if you piss them off, well, you don't get their you don't get they they don't take your business anymore. Uh, you do something that I've talked about many times, and I've done it, you know, probably two three times a year for ten years now with TSP alone. It's called firing a customer. When I get somebody that's unreasonable, and I have to say, I haven't had one in about two years, and maybe that's because when you do this long enough, you kind of just filter them out before they show up or something. Um, but I've had people that were irate over ridiculous shit, and I've just said, I'm sorry, you, you don't qualify as my customer anymore. Then they get really mad. And, and, and then they finally kind of come to this realization that there's something about being in business for yourself that's just not true in any other place or way. And that is, there's no appeals process if I tell you to go screw. Or if, my, I just mentioned my buddy Omar Cotter. He's a fishing guide. Generally speaking, he will work me in whenever he can. And I'm still a month out most of the time when I say, hey, I want to take you, I want you to take me and a friend out or something like that. And, and so if he's a month out or more to work me in, how much business do you think he needs? Not wants, but needs. In other words, he stays pretty full, but he, you know, with fishing guides, you kind of want to stay full for a couple months out. That's what you want to do. You don't want to be booking people the same week and things like that, because then you you don't know if you're going to have business this week. So, but in the end, he doesn't need me. So I'm pretty sure if I pissed him off bad enough and I said, okay, I want you to take me out fishing, he'd say, screw you, I'm not doing it. I don't need you. And that's the smaller the business, the more likely that is to be the case, and the more likely you are to be talking to the top person in that business, so that if who are you going to report them to? Better Business Bureau? Pfft, like that mattered since, oh, ever. I mean, seriously, who? if I tell you to go screw, you, you email me, and you say, Jack, I don't like the way you're doing MSB, and I think you should do this, and I think you should do that, and I, and I say, well, I think you should go do it yourself. If I'm doing it poorly, then you should go do it somewhere else on your own. Go do your own thing and leave me the hell alone. I don't have time for your shit no more. You're fired as a customer. What are you going to do? Tell my wife? Because I, I don't think that's going to go well for you. Right? I mean, there's really not much you can do. If a person's selling turkeys and does 250 turkeys a year, and you piss him off and he says, you know, he's a turkey Nazi, and says, no turkey for you. you know, if Darby Simpson goes turkey Nazi on you, what are you going to do? Call the National Turkey Association. There is such a thing. However, when you cultivate relationships with small business people, it goes. It's much more than that. They will maintain you as a customer, or that they will give you even extra consideration. The people that always know someone are entrepreneurs. The person that's in business for themselves knows other people, because you don't you don't get successful by yourself. There are groups of entrepreneurs all over the world that don't have any official title. And that's simply, I have a whole whole you know laundry list of people that if I need, you, know, you guys know a lot of them, that's how they became expert counsel people. But they, you know, beyond the expert counsel, there's people that if I need to know something, I know who to call. So if you come to me and you have a problem as my customer, 
And I can't solve it. I probably know somebody that can. But if you're a dick, do you think I'm going to make that extra effort? Do you think I'm going to, like, so I'm going to, so what I'm actually talking about then is opening my network to you. Oh, you have a problem with this. I know this guy, his name's Darby Simpson. He's a full-time farmer. He could probably help you with this. So I do that. It's exactly what I'm doing on the show. But I'm talking about doing it one-to-one, you know, with somebody that comes to my farm, for instance, back when we sold eggs. If somebody had asked for something, yeah, I know this person does it. You know, am I going to let an asshole into my inner circle network? No. I don't want you talking to my friends because you're a dick and you might be a dick to them and then they think I'm a dick. And so this is good advice not just with small businesses. This is good advice in life. Never be a dick unless you need to be a dick and then be a dick quickly, efficiently, and go on about your life. And when it comes to small business people, just understand it's, it, it cuts two ways. Because I've had people actually irate with me, couldn't believe that you, you well, you are, you are going to sell to me. No, I'm not. And if, if, if I see you buy something from me, I'm going to refund your money and cancel it. You don't get to be my customer. Brian Black and Kelly Black learned this from me very early on, and they had a very irate customer. Wanted to buy like his, his best tactical bag, like a $400 bag. And they basically got fed up with this person and told them to go screw it and said no. And they lost their mind and demanded, you will sell this to me. And they said, uh, no, 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 I won't. And I think there is a big lesson there, Kern, and you're right, you know, We should just be excellent to each other, like in the words of Bill and Ted, which, by the way, a third movie's coming out. I don't know how well that's going to work out for them, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. But we should be as excellent to each other as we can. You know, I can be a dick. You guys know that. Uh, but generally, when, when you, if you guys see me online being an asshole to somebody, it, it probably isn't that it was the first time that I dealt with them. I've probably dealt with them multiple times and either told them to, to piss off or I've tried to be reasonable up to a point. And then you're like, you know what? And I think there's a place for that, too. There's a place for telling people to piss off. Once they become toxic in your life, you have to. And as a business person, when you have a toxic, heavy, burdening customer, you have to understand that every second that you spend trying to make a person will never be happy, happy, you're not spending your time doing the job you're supposed to be doing for your good customers to do support you. So, yeah, they got to go. they got to get fired. Uh, next up, let's take another one. This is another one of those, uh, Jack, you're right. And I'm like, damn it. Um, there's an article out from Salon uh, this week, and the title is, Once It's Greatest Foes, Doctors Are Embracing Single Payer. And you can read the article if you want, but there's a physicians group of younger physicians saying they think healthcare is a right and how the older physicians warned about how they'd be you know the, they get paid less and all the problems that would come with single payer and government run healthcare and stuff like that but basically the world of doctors medical professionals is swinging toward a positive opinion of single payer healthcare government controlled healthcare um and it's obvious why It's not because young doctors think health care is a human right. That's not why. It's not even young doctors. It's the people that are the head of one of the largest unions in America that people don't even know is a union, the American Medical Association. It's the drug companies that send pretty reps out to bad eyes at the young-looking doctor. It's all the people that actually make the decisions within the medical industry who are now speaking on behalf of all the doctors and saying this is what the doctors want now. And now they're also, because it goes two ways, they're telling the doctors what they want. And this is my big problem with doctors as a whole. They believe whatever the hell they're told. 
And I, I know that you, you, some of you are going to get mad at me for that, but they do. And, and you have to understand why to get why, right? <laughs> that sounds like double talk, but seriously. Um, you got to think about what a doctor is. A doctor is a smart, hard-working academic. That, that's first and foremost. You cannot become a doctor if you are not a smart, hard-working academic because you will never get the grades to get into the right uh, regular college and get the grades in the degree uh, that you take uh, to then go on to medical school and become an MD, and then you will not get through your residency unless you are a smart, hard-working academic. So that's not a negative, but it's a thing, isn't it? In school, for, and I'm not picking on the education system at all, just, just in general, school works like this. You're told the way things are. When you're able to repeat the way things are, you get an A. Okay? Medical school does not change that. There's just a lot more, and it gets more complicated. You're talking about, you know, where in anatomy class they learn everything, not just all the muscles and bones, but th this little indentation in this particular bone that goes up under here. What is that called? You've got to remember it because you might be given an instruction at some point to do something with it or giving somebody else an instruction to do something. You've got to know where that thing is. So it, it, it's, it's a magnified thing that authority dictates the facts. So doctors come into a practice of some kind, whether it's emergency medicine, whether it's family medicine, whatever, and they have another doctor over their shoulder, and he's telling them what to do. Now that other doctor, especially when they go through a residency, that other doctor works for a hospital, and that hospital is a financial institution first and a medical institution second. And even when they're nonprofit, they're still profit-driven because if you don't pay the bills, the lights go out. So they make hardcore business decisions that masquerade as medical decisions to get handed through. And then all of the information in your textbooks and in the reports you read and everything else, it comes from the pharmaceutical and the medical device industry. And then doctors don't read studies. They always say, well, I, there's, there's been lots of studies on that, and I've read them. No, you didn't. 99% of the time, when a doctor says they read a study, they read the conclusion of the study. And if, there's an, if, if it's like a study that took a bunch of studies and put it together and says this is what all the studies say, well, a doctor believes that conclusion, period. So that doesn't just have to do with medical things like what drug to use or what surgery to use or what protocol to use or what medical device to use. It also has to do with what's your opinion of the industry because that's what unions do. Unions tell the worker what to think about the industry and the offers and the business itself. So we are heading toward this with the doctors now because insurance doesn't want to pay for shit. Insurance has gotten extremely expensive, and they pay for less and less, and they pay the doctors less and less. And the doctors would rather have what you'd call, I've talked about this before, I mentioned it last week, saying, you know, somebody said so-and-so, but his money's green. Talking about an asshole customer. Like, if a customer's big enough, all that shit we just talked about, you know, you'll deal with them. You know, if you have an account that's worth $5 million a year to you, and the guy that you have as a representative over there is a dick, you'll deal with him. So this is, this is where we are in the medical industry that, in the end, doctors have to make business decisions. And the thing about the federal government is their money's green. You fill out the paperwork, you get paid. And if they're going to get pushed down in what they actually build, what they actually get paid, and if you tell them, well, we can get paid for everything all the time, on time, that starts to you know sound pretty attractive. It's a business decision. Also, many doctors are employers. And they're going broke trying to provide insurance for their staffs. 
And even the ones that are small enough that they don't have to provide insurance, they know that their people can't afford insurance. And they see the problem, and that's the big reason. They see how bad it is. Because in the end, I don't mean anything I said about doctors to be negative about them as people. I think doctors are awesome. Okay? In the end, doctors are most of the time, there's some who just want money, but generally they are not the doctor that's a family practitioner. They go into some specialized surgery or something because there's lots of money in it. Um, doctors are in business to help people. They want to help people. That's why they do that. And they see people suffering. And when they look at the whole thing as a big mess, and every, everybody from above now is telling them, hey, this is the wave, the wave of the future, well, shit. At least I'd be able to just help people. I can stop. De- they think that they, that they can just stop dealing with all this other crap, and everybody will be able to get the health care that they know is important. Because when your doctor says you really should have your tests done or whatever, whether they're right or wrong, they believe it, and they really do feel that way because they care about you. Okay? And I think so. So the, the, the pressure is just simply pushing them to the only logical place to go from where we are. And this is why the average American is on their way to this, too. I mean, when I look at what, what Dorothy and I pay for health insurance combined, it's, it's over $12,000 a year. Other than our house, it's our single largest expense. It's almost as expensive as our house. It's less expensive than our mortgage. Like, when I say it's almost as expensive as our house, I mean it's, it's, it's almost as expensive as my principal, my interest, my insurance, and my property taxes combined. And as much as I don't want single-payer health care, if, if you can cut my bill to $5,000 instead of twelve, I'll deal with a bunch of shit for that. Especially if it then does more. Even if it doesn't do it as well. And we can see this is the thing, we still resist because we can afford it. What if you can't? What if you just can't? And this is the summation of the whole thing. What I said before the health care bill was passed, and some of you have been around long enough, you'll know this is exactly what I said. You can call all of your senators and all your congressmen. You can bitch, you can whine, you can moan. You can call all the talking heads on TV and on the radio. You can hold up signs. You can bitch, cry, piss, moan, and bellyache. This thing will pass. It is going to pass. You're going to get sold out, and they're going to do it. And when they do it, it is going to destroy health care from an affordability standpoint. They're calling it the Affordable Care Act. They should call it the Unaffordable Care Act. They did not have the political will to get a government option into the bill. But they did what they figured was the next best thing. They set up a system where that could only be the logical result. So you have people now, like Bernie Sanders coming out, Medicaid for all. It ain't going to happen. We will not have a single-payer health care system. We will have a single-payer option, a.k.a. the government option. That, that's what we're going to have. And the other thing I said, and again, you can go back through archives and find this stuff if you want to. I said that you will get two terms of Barack Obama. And I was told, you're a libtard. I, again, I'm the, I'm the weatherman. I'm not saying I want this. I'm just telling you, what I, you know, you're going to get two terms of Barack Obama. They're going to hold on to this. By the time the Republicans take over, it's going to be such a mess, they're not going to be able to fix it. They're going to promise to fix it, and they're not going to. And, and before the last two elections, I said, the Republicans have already sold you out. They're not going to fix this. 
You're a libtard. I don't know where you get that. I'm, I, I really, like, I'm, I'm dumbfounded when I hear that. You're, when I tell you that the, gov- you're, that the right's screwing you over, I'm a leftist. I, okay, whatever. Anyway, so, and that we would get a Republican strongman president. Now, I'm, I said this in 2009. We would get a Republican strongman president who would come in and do things that the Democrats have always wanted to do, but no Democrat president would ever be capable of getting done because this guy will get the right to go along with it. Okay? Right. That sounds crazy. Trump, ah, he's all, everybody hates him. Hold on a second. Let's look at a different issue. And tell me it's not exactly what's happened. In 2010, if you would have said to the average Republican, I'm not talking about elected official, public, you know, self-identifying Republican uh, citizen that voter, self-identified Republican voter, what we'd like to do is this. Let's let all the people that are illegal aliens that are in the United States stay. Ah! Now, hold on. Let me finish the whole thing before you flip. Then you can flip out. Let's let them all stay, assuming that they go through certain qualifications and that they, uh, they, they don't have a criminal record and things like that, and it's a multi-year path, and, and then they can all stay. But on the other side of it, we seal the border. And the thing is, we're, we're going to seal the border. For, we're going to put up a wall. We're going we're to do absolute stringent enforcement of any new people coming here. And we will seal the border first, and then we'll do this thing. Or we'll do this thing, and it, it has contingencies upon other things getting done to seal that border. And we're going to set a new precedent that you don't get to come here illegally. We make it very difficult to come here illegally. And we come up with a system that makes it easier to come here legally to work uh, for a time or for a long term. What do you think of that? The average Republican would have stuck their fingers in ears and went, no, 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 no way, ah, scream, we'll shut it down like we did before. Ah, that is the standard Republican position today, which was, in 2010, 2012, 2014, the Democrat position. That was the Democrat position on immigration, except they didn't mean it when it came to sealing the border. But that's what they wanted on, the, they call it amnesty side, DACA, the Dreamers. Republicans are now for the Dreamers. Now, you'll see the holdouts putting up the one guy that murdered three people or something like that. But in general, the average person today feels like, hey, if this guy's been here 15 years without causing any trouble, he's holding a job anyway. Why don't we normalize this? But, yeah, let's stop this illegal immigration thing. So Trump's already pulled the Republicans to the Democrat position on amnesty. And you'll write me and tell me, not you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the majority. If you can take the majority of Republicans and give them a Democrat position and add it to the Democrats, you have a super majority. You can get anything done now. Healthcare will go much faster because it's much more real to people. A lot of the stuff that people say about illegal immigration is theoretical to people. They don't really see it. They don't really feel it, but they pay that insurance premium. And what? here's what you're going to get. You're going to not get Medicare for all. You're going to get Medicare for all who want it. You will be able to buy into Medicare. Medicare will essentially become a competing insurance agency with the primary insurers. And it will be the biggest cluster F you have ever seen in your life. But it will, at least short term, 
cut the cost, at least to people that are paying for their own insurance. It'll cut the cost to employers. It will probably happen in Donald Trump's dun 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 second term as president. Unless something comes out of this Mueller investigation, and we keep hearing rattling that it will, and I don't think that it will, that truly takes down Trump, not his friends and consorts, him himself, that drives him out of office. Unless that happens, or unless the economy, before the next general election, goes completely off the rails, Donald Trump's going to get reelected. And the hysteria by the left is the reason why. I don't think he will deal with a Democratic majority in the House and Senate after this election. It could be a soft Democrat majority in the House. It could be a soft Republican majority. By his second term, though, he's going to deal with a House that's run by the Democrats. It is very possible in the general election of, of, of Trump's re-election that he'll lose the House and retain the presidency at the same time. I know it doesn't seem likely, but it's happened plenty. It happened to Barack Obama. It happened to Barack Obama. People will split that vote. And when they do, you now have a Trump that by then this whole impeachment is, is moot. A re-elected president does not get impeached. Okay? There's not, the political will is not there. Then it becomes, well, listen, what, can we, what can we do with this dealmaker? And this is what you'll get. And a lot of the things that Trump would like to do with the Republicans, he will be able to do with the Democrats. Because they look, see, the problem now for the Democrats, everybody's so worried about image. If the Democrats work with Trump now, it looks like they're losing. If the Democrats have the majority and they work with Trump, it looks like they're forcing his hand and they're winning. So you have to have a swing there to get that done. I know it sounds crazy, but in 2009, 2010, when I said how this would all play out, when I started talking about a Republican strongman that would get things done that no Democrat ever could, that would pull Republicans to Democrat positions... And why do you think the Democrats' positions had largely moved to socialism, be it European socialism or outright socialism, democratic, so call it whatever you want, socialism. I know they were always socialists, but now they're outspoken socialists. If you want to drag the right to the left, the left has to move further to the left. It's all planned. It's all pantomime. I do think Trump's the wild card, but it doesn't prevent them from using him. I really don't. Anyway, let's take another one. Here's a pretty quick one. This comes from Bill. Bill says, uh, what is the quickest way to find an episode from the archive? I'm a new MSB member, and I've been listening for a long time. I wanted to download a few of my favorite episodes. Is there a searchable database? For instance, if you had an episode on how you methodically break down how you would learn to teach a new subject. You, you used learning everything about uh, a herd uh, each week uh, for a year, uh, and boom, you have a wealth of knowledge. I'm not sure what he's meaning there. Everything you heard about each week, and boom, you have a, a wealth of knowledge. I want to save and listen to the episode again. I'm sure there are many others that will come to mind. Thanks, Bill in Greenwood in Missouri. Well, first of all, Bill, uh, thank you for becoming an MSB member. Uh, without that, I don't have a business. That, you guys are what makes Survival Podcast a profitable business, and so thank you for supporting me. One of the benefits of being an MSB member is you do get all the episodes ever in zip files. and But that's that's what they are. I mean, it's just blocks of 24 at a time, and you just right-click, save as, and boom, you got 24 episodes downloaded. Um, 
and then and that's what you got. You got just basically all of it. There's no searchable database for that, but there is a search function on the website. So the best thing you could do then is to go ahead and search the website and find the episodes that you're interested in. And then if you some of them are really old, you have them in that huge archive, you know what numbers to go pull out. Because then you just have them in sequential order. So if you know the episode is 363, and I have no idea what that show's about, by the way, but if the episode's 363, you just go to you know 363 and you have it available to play. So the search function. Now, I realize that doesn't always work really well, but the more specific you can be, the more likely there's enough information in the notes that it will come up as one of the from 2 to 20 episodes you can scroll through and find. The other option is that most episodes are tagged. So there's a tag cloud that will pull up everything on a given subject. And uh, you, if you even click on a tag from the tag cloud, let's say you clicked on permaculture, and what you really wanted was um, uh, farming. I don't know how much there is on that, but you could just erase uh, permaculture and replace it with farming and hit enter, and it would pull up that tag if there is anything for it. So tags and searching the site are really the best. However... There will come, because I've had people, you had this one episode, it was about this and this and this. I'm like, oh, yeah. And even I, when I start searching on my own site, can't find it for the person. And I've occasionally gone to the Survival Podcast Facebook forum on Facebook. Not the forum forum, but the group, the Facebook group, and said, Guys, this is my show, and I can't remember what episode this was. I was talking about these things. Anybody got any idea what episode that was? And somebody, within a day, will pop and go, it was this. And I'm like, holy crap, you know? Um, so I would really advise for that and other reasons to become a member of the Facebook group. Now, I have a Facebook page, and I have a Facebook group. I think you should be part of both of them, but here's what I do with the page. I take new posts on the blog, and I post it to the page, And occasionally I respond there. And the reason I do that is because Facebook is a big bunch of greedy jerks. And what they do now is after people like me have built pages with over 100,000 followers, when I put something up on my page, like 800 people to 2,000 people see it. What about the other 98,000? For me, like 108,000. Um, okay, would you like your people to see the stuff you posted? Well, yes, please. That's why I had them follow me on Facebook. Okay, well, if you give us $100, we'll show it to 800 or 8,000 more of your people. Um, no. no, 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 I'm not doing that. So the group, you'll be more likely to actually see things and you'll interact with other group members. So it's not just posting something for me. You'll get help from a really great team of people there that, that, that watch out and look out for each other and do a lot to help each other out. So I'm going to recommend the search function, the tag cloud, and the Facebook group. And to find the Facebook group, you can go to the survival, you can go to the, my side, the survival podcast. And if you scroll down, you'll see a, a, a logo for the Facebook group. You can click that. There's a link in today's show notes. Or just go to Facebook and search for the Survival Podcast Facebook Forum. You can join that group. There's like some screening questions and stuff. You have to be approved by an admin. Uh, but once you're approved, you're in. It might take a day or two, depending on how many people are trying to get in at one time. But there's only about 8,000 people in that group, compared to about 110,000 people on my page. And when I post something to the group, it gets far more response than the page does. Way more response. And way more people see it. 
So there's a business lesson there on top of this, guys. If you're building a Facebook presence, put your effort into a group. And you can have a page, too, and link the group to the page and post everything to the page, but put your effort and your building into the group. At least for now, you'll get more traction out of that. I don't know if they'll screw us again someday on that, but it would seem a lot harder since the groups are forum-like. They're roundtable discussions. They're, they're not just me to you. They're you to your other people within the organization. I will give you a little piece of advice, though. If you are part of any of our social media groups, whether it's Zello, the old-school forum, Facebook forum group, anything like that, and a moderator says, hey, guess what? What you're doing is not acceptable here. Don't argue with them. Don't argue with them. Because the next thing you're going to have is the great big Harley Quinn band hammer smacking you in the head, and you're going to be gone. And when you come to me and go, Jack, I wasn't even doing anything wrong, and you're moderate. I'm like, I don't give a shit. That's how these groups work. They're, they're, I don't run them. That's what I love about them. I don't run them. I didn't set the rules. They're member-led and member-run. But my, my advice, advice all, I have, it's the, the Facebook forums, the one we have the most problem children in right now. And we have a moderator uh, group chat. And I'll see them like discussing it. And like I see them go on for like 15 minutes trying to figure out, do we or do we not ban this person? Sometimes I go ban them myself. I'm like, they're taking way too much of your time up. You're not paid to do this. right? If you have to put this much effort into figuring out whether this person needs to be here, they don't need to be here. So that's your little additional warning. Um, next question comes from Jeff. Jeff says, I'm leaving a job where I have a small pension that I can cash out. Do I pay the debt off or roll it into an IRA? I'm a firefighter, and I'm leaving a city that I've been with for four and a half years to go work for another city for better pay and retirement. 27 years old, and I have about 10K that I've contributed to my pension uh, that I can cash out or roll into an IRA or something. My wife and I are currently doing the debt snowball to get out of debt at 70K. Many student loans and car loans should use that money to pay off some debt or get the snowball bigger to knock it out faster, keep it for retirement, roll into something like an IRA. Thanks for your advice. I've been listening since 2012, Jeff. Um, at $10,000, I would probably look at paying whatever you have to in interest and fees and putting it into a Roth IRA. At the point that you move it into the Roth IRA, the initial contribution will become a taxed contribution, therefore subject to withdrawal. So let's say you end up with $7,500 after you pay your, your taxes and fees or whatever to roll into the Roth. Um, You could then take that money out anytime you want in the future. It's liquid. Only the interest gained uh, on things would then be subject to the withdrawal rules. And I would begin making contributions to that Roth IRA uh, as soon as you're out of your debt. Because your, your new thing will be doing some retirement contributions for you. $70,000 is a lot of debt. $10,000 don't do much to it. And like $7,500, you are really going to get out of it. Doesn't do much better. Your other option, if you don't like losing the money now and it is kind of a small amount of money, you could roll it into a conventional IRA and pay no penalties on it, but you're young. You know, 27, 37, 47, 57, 67, retirement age-ish, 40 years at least. There's a, you're going to pay a lot more taxes on those 40 years of gains than you're going to pay right now on $10,000. But I am totally opposed in the little bit of information I have, Jeff, and you putting this money on your debt. I think it'll make you feel a little bit better, but it won't really drive the debt down very much. 
And what, will, what it will do is wipe your total retirement savings to zero, and that is not where I want you at 27. I, 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 I don't like that at all. The reason I like the option of moving this to a Roth, and, and basically what, what you do then, like I said, you convert that money to taxed money. You've now paid tax on it. Now it's a contribution to the Roth. What that would let you do is let it be a standby for your emergency fund because you're probably not going to build much of an emergency fund up while you're paying off $70,000. And I think you need to put your head down and your ass up and work your ass off and eat beans and rice one day and rice and beans the next day. Good old Dave Ramsey snowball. That's my advice. And then you can do what you want. But you asked me, and, and that's what I would do if I were 27 and I were you, um, you can't move the debt enough with that to make it, in my opinion, worth wiping out your retirement. Um, and again, I think it's worth doing the conversion to a Roth um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, next up, Aaron has some. I talk about the power of community here all the time. Aaron says, another shout-out for the awesome TSP Zello community. Uh, a few days ago, hold on a second, guys. All right, back at it. I had a computer glitch there. Uh, a few days ago, I noticed the ducks were drinking water from around my wellhead. I walked over to check, and water was streaming down the pipe and creating a puddle at the base that the ducks were drinking from. The last thing I need right now is an expensive repair bill. Aaron, I understand. I just paid an air conditioner bill this week with a freaking water heater bill last week, so I understand. Uh, not knowing a thing about wells, I popped on Zello, and Leos, Ford, and Philip talked me through some troubleshooting to see what the heck was going on. Without that resource, I would have called a plumber or a well company and likely written a large check. Instead, we determined that I have an intermittent artesian well. Uh, we have steady rain for almost three weeks straight. Total cost, about 20 minutes of my time and some duct tape. Thank you for all you do for making this community possible. Uh, so basically, it was just pumping out some excess water. That's all it was. Now, let's say you'd called the most honest plumber in the business. I'm still billing you. I mean, I drove to your house. It's probably out in the country, by the way. I probably ate an hour of my time at least. I could have been somewhere else doing billable work. We call that a truck roll. So, your best case scenario, you're looking at a, you know somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to hundred bucks that was saved and put back in Aaron's budget by jumping on Zello, pushing a button, saying, "Hey, this is Aaron. I got a question on wells and people willing to help you." Telling you guys, the Facebook forum and the Zello group are incredible groups of people. If you're not in them, you're not taking advantage of the full uh, benefit of being part of this TSP community. They're, they're just amazing people. Aaron, thanks for sharing that. Next up, um, I have an article here from Eli. Eli says, just saw this come across my social feeds. It's a link to uh, an article on uh, uh, GA Tech, which is Georgia Tech University. Basically, Georgia Tech is now offering a bona fide master's degree in cybersecurity for under $10,000 by actually using technology to drastically reduce the cost of higher education. Once this becomes commonplace, it's going to be super difficult for these schools to get away with charging 10K plus a semester when you can get an entire degree from an online course from the university uh, for less. 
and that can scale infinitely with as many students as there are who want to take the class for less money. Um, he says, the cool thing for me about these online courses are getting inexpensive enough that I'm beginning to consider taking a few just to get some new things for fun, something that is prohibitively expensive and time-intensive even at the local junior college. Have a good one, Eli. Um, yeah, this is just a... This is like when you you're looking at the side of a mountain and you're about to have a landslide and something happens, maybe there's a stiff wind, maybe a little bit of uh, water erosion happens during some frost melt-off or something like that, and you see like one little one little rock, like the size of a baseball, just go You think, man, I'm glad I wasn't standing underneath that. <laughs> you have no idea how glad you're going to be that you don't go over there and pick that rock up. Because that rock is this type of thing. So now you don't have a, you know, a University of Phoenix or Western Governors University or somebody that specifically is into this to compete with you. You have a actual university that is a university people pay for this degree that's under $10,000 to do online. People pay that are in-school students $20,000 for this degree. And out, or, I'm sorry, in-state students. So if you live in your Georgia resident, you pay about $20,000. Because remember, this, this master's degree, and I think Eli might have missed this, I'm not sure. It doesn't say you have no college and you're going to get for $10,000 a master's degree in, in, in cybersecurity. What it says, you have your bachelor's, and you're going to complete your master's work to, to add that MS to your BS, right? Uh, it is $20,000 for a Georgia resident and forty grand for a non-in-state student to do this degree. Do it online for $9,000 and change. That's that rock, That's that rock. Because, well, why would I spend $20,000 to pursue my master's there now and go to the school? What possible reason would I have to do that? Generally, not always, but generally people that are pursuing master's degrees have begun their work life. And if you haven't, you're stupid. Okay, If you get a master's before you get a job in your field, you, you're pricing yourself out of entry level. And it's very hard to get the first opportunity once you do that. So generally speaking, people have a job. Or at least they're starting to get some internships, something in their field when they go to that master's level. Again, if they're smart. should be freaking smart if you're going to get a master's degree. Maybe you are. Um, why would I spend twice as much money to have to go sit in a desk when I could spend you know, 50% less and, 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 and take my courses in my own time? The degree, see, the thing is the degree, says Georgia Tech. It doesn't matter where I go to school. The degree says Georgia Tech. The degree that the employer will look at says Georgia Tech University. It doesn't say Correspondence School of Georgia Tech. It says Georgia Tech University. Why would I pay more for it? Now, here's the real thing. You have a conflu confluence of things right now. Remember Tony Seba that talked about a clean energy disruption? There's certain things that when you get a certain point, a disruption to the status quo is inevitable. When the, when the automobile became cheap enough that the average person with a job could afford one, the day of the horse is the mainstream of transportation was over. And nothing could stop it. 
Plenty of people put their fingers in their ears and called it a horseless carriage and didn't believe in it, thought it was a fad, but it wouldn't go away. The day that it became where you could get a cell phone for less money generally than a landline, the day of the landline was over. Now, I know some of you say, I have a landline in my house. How often do you really use it? It's a legacy of something that's held on because it's easy and convenient and cheap now. I don't have one. Most people don't have one anymore. It is one of the, the fastest collapsing legacy businesses in the world. That's why all the telecom companies that resisted cell phones are all in the mobile business now. Because you reach a tipping point. And usually you see one piece. Well, the automobile became available. So a lot of other things that went on. Improvement in roads and stuff like that. And when you have enough things come together, that disruption is inevitable. And this is what you got going on in the education market right now. First of all, your primary setup for a major disruption is the value of degrees has gone down. Degrees are worth less money than they, they ever have been in history. Why? Because more people have them than any time in history. For those of you, I'm going to geek out for a second talk about baseball cards. Those of you that are baseball card collectors or were when you were kids, you're probably aware that the most valuable baseball card in the world, at least when I was a kid collecting baseball cards, was one of the tobacco cards. You see, baseball cards used to come with uh, cigarettes. And that card is a Hannes Wagner baseball card. He was a good player, but he wasn't you know, a Babe Ruth or nothing. But that card was worth in the 80s like $20,000. Why? I think there was 18 to 20 of them in existence. Why? Hannes Wagner was a non-smoker and hated smoking. So he said, you cannot put my card in a pack of cigarettes. Uh, sorry, 20 of them already got out. Maybe probably a couple hundred got out there, but nobody really cared. But only 20 of them survived. So it was worth $20,000 because only 20 of them. Now, if you want a Hannes Wagner tobacco-sized baseball card, you can get them. They do reproductions. They're like 50 cents. But the originals are valuable because they're rare. College degrees traditionally had an extreme value to employers because a, only a small subset of people that were on the market for jobs had them. Now everybody and their mother has a degree because we've had 30 to 40 years of every child should go to college, every child should go to college, every child should go to college. So the bachelor's degree has become the new high school diploma. What was a high school diploma worth in 1980? Not much. It was good to have. Don't get me. See, I'm not completely shitting on it. Don't get me wrong. It's good to have, but it wasn't worth much. You wouldn't pay a lot of money to get a high school diploma. You know, if GEDs were $15,000, no one would have had one in 1980. I don't need that. I don't need that at all. Right? This is what's happened to college degrees in the mind of employers. I've told you many times, I've talked to employers, well, I require a degree because there's so many people that have one. So the value of the degree has gone down, and the cost of the degree has gone up. And there's your first peg in the wall of disruption. Additionally, now we have gotten to a point where the technology necessary to distribute, to distribute the information and judge the performance of the, the student has gotten to where it's pennies. It, it's fractions of pennies on the dollar. It's pennies on the thousands of dollars to do this. So now we have the mechanism, and we've also reached a confluence where the value of the degree is beginning to drop. And because of government interference in the market, the cost has gone exponentially up. This, this landslide, it's going to be like 
oh, well, maybe there's another one here and another one, a nanodegree this, and that specialized school that, and oh, look, this medical school is paying 100% of tuition for all doctors. That's a new story that's out this last couple of weeks as well. Yeah, but not everybody gets in. See, and that's the thing. College used to be something that a lot of times people didn't pay to go do. Since there were a lot less people that got in, the scholarship money and the grant money and the school's money and all of it went a lot further because there were less people to distribute up amongst. This is going to, I'm telling you, it's going to be like overnight. You're going to see universities that have been around for a hundred years either going cyber or closing their doors. It'll never happen. Yeah, and there'll never be a strongman president, you know, following Obama that'll get Democratic things done while Republicans cheer either, right? I'm sorry, that's, yeah, I'm the weatherman, guys. Okay, this is from John in Moore Park. And John sends me lots of great stuff. And uh, he says, where have we heard this before? It's a CNN money report. It says, is the resume dead? So companies and recruiters are putting less emphasis on resumes when searching for job candidates. And read the full story. And, and basically the upshot of the article is get a LinkedIn profile. How 2006 of you, CNN money. Uh, very well done. I'm glad you've gotten up to 2006, 2008 timeline in your recommendations Well done. But they are actually coming to the conclusion that I came to back in 06 when I wrote a white paper for a company called Data Workforce, which I was a partner in with Neil Franklin, and it was caused it was called The Death of the Resume. Again, I authored this in 2006, and it was backed up by one of our mathematicians from Syrian who was running actual algorithms determining the decaying rate of how much people were going to rely on resumes. I wish I could find that damn thing, because it disappeared into the wilds of nothingness now um, because I'd like to compare it to what they're saying. They're saying that uh, in this article, I, I'm, I'm not reading any articles today, but all the ones that I've mentioned are actually in the show notes link. But the the senior director, you, again, you read the article if you want to, the senior director for human resources for Cisco, the computer Cisco, not the airplane food Cisco, uh, C-I-S-C-O. Cisco has said that resumes 10 years ago, were 35 to 40% of the hiring process, and today they're 10. And, and, and I don't even think they're 10. I think they are now a formality in most, most positions. And I think there's a legacy. There's, there's people that are still running HR departments and screening candidates and stuff like that. All they know is a resume. They're 50 years old. All they know is a resume. They don't understand hunting for candidates. They understand candidates coming to them. And I guess to make this, and this is what I, I said back in 06, What people don't understand about the resume is it is a marketing piece. It is, it would be in your best interest to learn more about me. I'm really good and I can do the things you need done. Call me and we'll talk. That's really what a resume is. In other words, resumes are direct mail. Resumes are direct mail. Now, there's still some direct mail around today, but it's not the marketing piece that it used to be. Now, the marketer in me keeps using the phrase direct mail. You probably don't use that phrase, and unless you're a marketer and have been involved in campaigns like this in the past, you've probably never used the term direct mail. You have another term for this as the person receiving it. You call it junk mail. And I said junk mail, the first thing you probably thought of was spam because you live in the computer age where most of your junk mail now comes to your computer inbox, which is automatically thrown away and shredded by your email shredder thingy, What? right? But you still probably get some direct mail in your mailbox. 
but not like you did in the 1980s. Now, some of you are young, so you don't remember. But in the 1980s, there was a big, like, you knew something was wrong with your mail if on a given day there wasn't a big fistful of something in your mailbox. Because even when your aunt didn't send you a letter and the electric company had already got their bill for the month out and you didn't really have any real mail coming, like, when you opened that mailbox, there was a ton of crap in there. And there were two types of junk mail. There was pure junk mail where you got on some list somewhere or they just mailed something to everybody in your zip code or whatever it was. Uh, and then there was reactive junk mail, which really wasn't completely junk mail. That's where you you know, you know got your, your copy of Outdoor Life magazine in the 80s because that's where you got all your hunting articles back then. And there was a whole list of advertisers in there. And some of them were like Winchester and Weatherby. You actually were interested in buying a new gun. So you had this little card you'd fill out and you'd check some boxes. Yeah, I'd like to hear from Winchester and Weatherby. And I like loophole scopes. I'll see what they got going on. And this outfitter that does uh, guided hunts in British Columbia, I want to check that. And you throw that thing in the mail. Usually you didn't even need a stamp for it. And that would put you on that company's mail list, and they would send direct mail to you. And you, you would have a, a, a better response rate to that, but it was still pretty crappy, but it was effective. That's a resume. The resume is like the... You filled out the card in the back of the magazine and said, I want to hear from these 10 advertisers. And you had a limited budget and you were going to spend something in that niche this year. And that you're saying, be a candidate for my money. And you could pick one of them. You could pick two of them. Or you might pick none of them and find what you're actually going to put that money to from a different source. That's a resume. And in 1985, 1995, it worked fairly well. Well, you don't get a lot of junk mail anymore. In fact, to contrast the distance, back there was an old, old edition of Mother Earth News magazine. Way, way back when they were not so political and they were a lot more about getting shit done. Now, I remember from the 80s. Might have been around 86, 87. This dude got himself on every junk mail list he could. He made a shredder compactor thing and he made fire logs out of junk mail. And he heated his whole damn house from the junk mail he got every year. Contrast that to today. Junk mail don't work as good no more because there's a lot more better, effective ways to market yourself as a company. Well, industry has snapped to this on the marketing side, but but candidates and hiring managers haven't so much snapped to it completely yet on the recruiting side. Because, yeah, I'm okay with having a LinkedIn profile, but if that's going to be what CNN comes away from this with, you know, like, again, welcome to 2006 there, CNN money. Um, and that's a good idea. But I think that if it was me and I still had a job, I would have a blog and I would be showcasing everything that I've done. And I would be sharing it on Facebook and Twitter and Minds and any place else I could find to share it. So that when somebody, because what they're doing now Recruiters are doing it, but they're building bots to do this. They're crawling social media to find people with unique skill sets. And in the end, what you want to be able to do is when you talk to a prospective employer, say, yeah, I've done projects like that before. Let me send you this link to an article about one that I did. Because you want to stand out. You want to be different. You don't want to be another resume on the pile. You don't want to be another piece of junk mail. And... I'll tell you the case of the last two jobs I had before I quit having jobs. I didn't need a resume to get the job. I had to have a resume for HR after I had the offer so that they could cut the actual offer letter, right, And so that I had an official offer in hand. But, I mean, the guy who was going to hire me had already hired me. 
in in the last one, the HR person wore multiple hats, like we all did in these organizations, and I knew it would actually be subordinate to me in my role that she was going to issue me the offer letter for. So <laughs> she said, well, I'm going to need your resume. I'm like, well, why? Well, we have to have one on file. All right, I'll get you one today. So I pulled up my resume, and I just like typed out a paragraph about what I was doing now without much thought to it, saved it, and sent it to her. And when I, when I went and saw her next, she said, I'm just going to give you some advice. HR people don't like functional resumes. And it was kind of a little bit of an assertive dick move, but I said, but HR people don't hire people. Do you have my offer letter? Because basically I was setting the groundwork to where this is not the kind of relationship we're going to have in an employer-employee relationship. We're not going to have where you're telling me what to do. Plus, I don't care about resumes. And you're going to need to understand that because when we're getting new candidates in here, I'm not going to care about their resumes either. You know, we had a prior relationship. I, I, I was nice about it. I said, look, I had a prior relationship here. Uh, what I do in the industry is known. I didn't ask for a job. I was asked to come take one. And uh, it was it, the deal was done over a couple martinis. It, it, it had nothing to do with the resume. And, and, and resumes are not going to matter anymore. They're really not. And this person was old school. Uh, she was out of, uh, what the heck was the name of that company? Something with an F, Fujitsu. And she had been a fairly high up uh, HR person in Fujitsu that they had brought her over from. And it was stuck in that world. And especially, this is, again, this is more than 10 years ago. This is what, 12, 13 years ago. Um, but that's where we're at now, where, where the resume is now like a formality. It's something they file on, that they put in your file. And, and it doesn't mean that it can't be useful. What I say, be different. I, I wouldn't hesitate right now if I had a place I really wanted to work and I knew the person I needed to talk to and I hadn't got through with other means to put, putting an old school resume on really high quality paper and mailing it to them with a handwritten cover letter. They're either going to call you or not, might as well take that shot. If you're going to do a resume, your resume better be tailor-made to the job you're applying for. I said it before, I'll say it again. It's the most valuable thing I say about resumes and what's left of them. If they say we have five bullet points we're looking for, five years of service, blah, 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 copy and paste their damn bullet points right into the top of your resume header so that your resume says, I am what you're looking for. You're looking for the interview. You're not looking for an offer. That's not how resumes ever work, but it's not how they work now. But, yeah, they're dying and they're dead, and, and, and the death is accelerating because – They are nothing but the modern equivalent of junk mail. The modern equivalent of junk mail. That's what they are. They are a snapshot where I... The, the purpose of a resume is now to disqualify you. So the, in 1985, as a hiring manager, the reason I wanted to see 20 resumes is so I could find 5, 10 people that are worth talking to. So what I was looking for in those resumes on some level was disqualifiers. But what I was really looking for is anybody interesting enough to talk to. In 2018, if you're looking at resumes, you're looking to disqualify that person as quickly as possible. Because instead of looking at 20 that were mailed to me, faxed to me, I'm looking at 100 that were downloaded by my assistant based on buzzwords. 
And, and they downloaded 200, and they've already culled the 200 down to 100. And now they put them in front of me, and I'm going, nope, 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 maybe, nope, 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 uh, 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 absolutely not, nope. And I'm ending up with three. If, I, if I'm lucky, I'm, I'm 3% of what I look at I want to talk to. If I want to hire a candidate, if I'm hiring 500 customer service reps, I'm using like low level HR types to conduct interviews. They were basically saying, can you tie your shoes? Right. Can you show up on time? Do you know how to spell? Can you work a keyboard? Can you talk on the phone and sound like, well, you're from here. Okay. And you have a basic vocabulary. So you understand how words work. Yeah. By the way, Do you have a bachelor's degree? Okay. Yeah, we got it. Because that's a, the skill set. Well, we need that bachelor's because everybody else has one. Okay, we'll put you in a training program or entry-level program or something like that. When I'm screening a candidate for a position, I'm looking for someone that can come in and take the reins and start right away. I'm not looking for somebody where I have to breathe for them. Right? I'm looking for somebody that comes in and breathes for themselves is the way you should describe it. And to be that differentiator imagine having all of you, all of your projects that can be public at least semi public i don't care if anybody pays attention to them so that you just have this little wordpress blog sitting there and and you see this position and they're looking for someone that does this particular type of coding and now you say well shit okay uh let me search my own blog using the search function oh there's that Right. Okay. Then you write an email that says, uh, "Dear hiring manager, please use their actual name." Uh, you know, I've noticed that you're looking for people in this particular discipline. I'm currently exploring other career opportunities. Well, I would be happy to forward my resume to you. I thought it would be better for you to take a, a look at a project I did similar uh, to, to this in the past uh, on my blog. You can take a look at that here. I believe that I could help you guys, and you keep this to where I can read it in less than two minutes. And you send me that. How many of those do you think I get a day? And you can come up with a hundred different ways to market yourself. And you build that network of people that know you. Because the best jobs don't come by what I just described. The best jobs come this way. We need somebody who can do X, Y, and Z. And you're talking to me and I go, I don't do that. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't work. Whatever it is I say where like, I'm not interested. But I know this person. And I, I don't know if you can get them to come work for you. But if I needed a person like this, this is where I would go. This is the person I would talk to. And the, you you are worth a million dollars to that employer at that point. That is that is the gold standard for a recommendation. You will if it's doable, you will do it to bring that person in almost unseen. Now, once they see you, you can you can mess it up. Right, But when you get a recommendation like, I don't know if you can get them, but if you can, then. ah, you, They're actually thinking, I hope I can afford this person before they even talk to you. Now, how do you get that? You get that with a broad network with a positive opinion of you that knows what you do. They have to, like, There's plenty of people that can say, I think Tom's a nice guy. What's he do? Don't know. But if they at least know Tom is a computer engineer. We're looking for computer engineers. I, I know one. 
It's not as good as, I don't know if he, but it's still, it's, I know one. His name's Tom. He's really, I think he's really good. He might be interested in this. I mean, you bypass all the bullshit. You know, all those filters designed to make you go away? When, when you, the person that wants to do the hiring has a name handed to them, they'll tell HR, just get this guy set up for an interview. Well, we need to do this. No, no, what you need to do is you need to schedule an interview on freaking Tuesday so I can talk to this person, and they'll say, don't, and I've, I've said it to HR, don't, don't try to help. You're only going to screw it up. As far as background checks or anything we have to do, if we decide we're making an offer, you can do that then. I don't want you messing with this until I sit down and have an interview with this person. And often that won't even happen. Often, I mean, I've done like, okay, geez, this guy, the developer I hired when I was working with Neil, holy crap, I don't think I can afford, I was honest to God thinking, I don't know if I can afford this guy. And so I set up a lunch meeting. They just wrote everything, just got everything out of the way so I could sit down and know the person first. And it came down to, I have a kid coming. I can't drive all the way downtown anymore every day. I'll work for less than I'm worth so that I can work close to home and have flexibility in my schedule. All right, this is what I can do. Will that work? Yeah. Okay, well, let's get this done. So then I walked that shit into HR and said, hey, we're hiring this guy. Here's how much the salary is going to be. Here's the terms of his conditions. I need an offer letter today. Get it done. What are they going to say? No. <laughs> Well, they're going to say no. It's not my, it's not your department, it's mine. You, see, that's the thing. HR, in most companies anyway, performs a service for the rest of the company. I, I, I'm not asking you for permission. It's my cost center. It's my money. My name's on the door. I'm hiring this guy. Give me the paperwork so I can get that done before somebody else gets him. Real world story. This is how things are changing. And if you are relying on a resume today, You're relying on 1985 junk mail in 2018, and I just don't think you should be doing it anymore. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do is by doing your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com, where you see all my reviews and cool stuff like that. Today I have for you an item I've brought around a bunch of times. Because I think for the money, it's one of the best little deals out there. It's made by Winchester. Yeah, the same people that make Winchester rifles. It's a gunsmith screwdriver set. 51 pieces. So it's really 50 bits and one handle to turn the bits with. And it doesn't have everything you would ever need at, you know, at all times for everything you'd ever look at. But it does have, you know, hex bits, flathead bits, Torx bits, Robertson bits, tri-wing bits, clutch bits, spline bits. You know, it torque bits. It's a, it, it's, it really has a good assortment. And odds are, whatever little screw or, or thing you're looking at that needs to be turned, you, you will probably find it in this box. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, it's marketed as a gunsmithing screwdriver set. You know what it's great for? You take one of these, you stick it in your range bag so that you have some tools so when something goes on wrong out at the range, you, you, you can fix it. In my actual gunsmith box... Um, I have a very high-end set of gunsmith uh, screwdriver set um, that is designed, you know, when I'm going to be working on my guns, sitting in a vise or something like that. I don't want to mar a screw, and I might be working on something that's really kind of stubborn, and I need a harder bit or something like that. But for a range box, it's great. I also have one in my glove box in my truck. I have one on my boat. 
I've had my butt saved a couple times by having them there. There's nothing worse than sitting there looking at a screw and saying, if I could turn that screw, I could go home. And you're either really hot or really cold or really hot and cold or wet, and you can't turn that screw, and you're sitting there with a knife trying to turn it or trying to use a Leatherman. And it's, it's, you, I mean, we've done it. We've been places where we've made a bit for something because we didn't have one that fit. Uh, I've used a grinder to make a bit out of another bit so that it would fit where it didn't fit before. I've seen my buddy David do the same thing. It's always better to have the bit that you need. So this is for 16 bucks, cheap insurance policy. Get one for the range bag. Get one for your vehicle. If you got a boat, get one for your boat. At 16 bucks, if somebody steals it or gets lost, you know you won't have a cow over it or something like that. Uh, and remember, you can always find everything I recommend at tspaz.com. And if it's at tspaz.com, I own it, I use it, I spent my own money on it, or I wouldn't recommend it for you. That brings us to our song today. We're going into Elvis week. And uh, we have a song for you today that is the first song that Elvis released as a single. It's called um, That's All Right Mama. And I'll read to you from Song Facts here and give you a couple thoughts on Elvis in general. This was Elvis's first single, and it came out of his first recording session. Elvis was a 19-year-old truck driver when he came to Sun Records in Memphis to record a song as a gift for his mother. Uh, Sun was owned by Sam Phillips, who his assistant, Marion Kaiser, knew was looking for, quote, a white man that sounds like a black man, end quote. She alerted her boss to Elvis, and Phillips arranged some sessions with some local session players, bassist Bill Black and guitarist Scotty Moore. The trio tried a few different songs in various styles, finally hitting the mark when they informally started playing author Big Boy Crudup's obscure 1946 blues song, That's All Right. In a fast, innovative style, Phillips liked what he heard and had them record the song this way. This ump-tempo blues version led to some music historians considering it to be the first rock song. And, you know, it's hard for us to get our heads around the fact, like Elvis and later, like the Beatles, especially the early stuff, the, the music was considered like, ugh, by like parents of children who were radical rebels listening to this music. Like, it's really hard for us to see that, but it's true. But what Elvis did was he broke through that barrier in a way that really no one else ever has. Uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time kind of paid tribute to that in, in, uh, in, in song. Uh, there's there's a, a line uh, in a Jimmy Buffett song that, that goes like this. Elvis was the only man from northeast Mississippi who could shake his hips and still be loved by rednecks, cops, and hippies. And at the time, that was saying something. And Elvis was a guy that really did break through the music scene. He didn't just become one of the most iconic talents of all time in music. He, he changed the way that people actually looked at music. He changed the way people thought about music. It's really pretty an, ama an amazing American story. It's also one of those things that people think about happening in the music business, but just doesn't happen much. You know, you don't just go to record a song for your mom, and then some guy finds you and you get discovered, and next thing you know, you're famous. But it does on occasion. And I think it's, it, it's not talent that does that. It's talent plus. And it doesn't even matter plus what. It's plus something. In this case, it was kind of plus a look, an image, a charisma, and the right time and the right place 
both in the, the inside story you just heard, but in America and the music scene as a whole. All of those things came together. And, and that, you know, kind of we're talking about resumes and stuff today, it all comes together with that. There's a lot of talented people in the world. And you're probably not the most talented. But if you're talented enough, it's the plus that makes the difference. Good lead-off to Elvis Week. We'll be listening to uh, Elvis songs at the end of every show today for the rest of the week. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. <laughs> Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Thank you.